Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Hope you had a lovely omtiv. Yes, thank you, except for the rain at the end. Well, you're going to be getting a lot of that in the next six months. Today, we are going to be starting a new series called American Beginnings. This is more for, obviously, for our international audience, seeing that we've been very much focused on England and Europe until now. It's going to be a four-part series, and we're going to be diving into the unknown history of the story of early immigrants to the United States of America, including the gold rush in California in the 1800s. Rabbi Hirsch. So today we are going to look at the first Jewish American citizen and the first American spy. Now, around 20 Jews first arrived into North America in 1654. They arrived into New York or New Amsterdam as it was then and settled in Lower Manhattan along with the other settlers who were already established. At that time, Jews were made to pay a tax instead of carrying out guard duty, which they weren't trusted to do. And when they attempted to insist that they would fulfill their military duties, this was refused. So, not to be discouraged, one of them, by the name of Asher Levy, carried out his guard detail nonetheless at the stockades, peering into the wilderness of Manhattan. Because, uh, obviously, the Indians and the marauding Swedes made no distinction between Jew or Christian. And in due course, he became a Jewish landowner in North America, probably the first. He ventured into taking mortgages on property. What else does a Jew do? (laughs) In Dutch American villages such as Breuklin and Vlakbos, Flatbush for those who are unaware of its origins. And eventually he became a full and trusted free citizen, first Jew to do so, and was frequently named an executor in the wills of many Christian merchants, and he dies in 1681. I suppose I have to ask, was Christopher Columbus Jewish? That will be the subject of a future podcast. Okay. By 1722, there are 20 Jewish households in New York, making up about 1% of the population. There's a peak of 31 families in 1728 and the general population was around 8,000. Now, interestingly, whereas in 1701, Jewish merchants accounted for 10% of those engaged in overseas trade, even though they were only 2% around of the general population, the interesting element to this statistic is not that they were 10% of those engaged in overseas trades, because that was quite common, 
but that if we move 75 years forward to 1776, they were at the time around 1% of the population, but less than 1% of the overseas merchants. The decline in overseas trade indicated that New York Jews had become rooted in North America. Colonial transience had given way to a sense of permanence. This was home. You have to realise there was no ghetto in North America. There was little open anti-Jewish feeling. Most of the Jewish population lived in the area below Wall Street, which was an actual wall. And during that period of British rule, Jewish merchants were able to hold many positions of responsibility. Nevertheless, the Jews were often anti the old country, anti-Europe at heart, which brings us to the position taken up by Jews in North America from which they were disbarred in most countries in Europe, the army, becoming a Jewish army officer. One of the first was Joseph Isaacs, who enlisted in the New York militia as far back as 1690. Then you have Jacob Judah in 1747, Michael Isaacs, Isaac Moses and Isaac Myers, all in 1755. And when the revolution breaks out in 1775, around two years after the Boston Tea Party, for which I believe there's still an invoice outstanding, <laughs> There were about two and a half thousand Jews in all of the 13 colonies, which means there were only about a few hundred Jews of military age. But the Continental Army had its fair share of Jewish soldiers and officers. We know of three majors, six captains. We know of over 40 Jews who fought directly under George Washington. And in South Carolina, there was a Jews company, which got its name from the fact that they had been recruited from a section of Charleston where Jews predominated and the majority of its members were Jews. Three went on to win the rank of lieutenant colonel. And of them, David Frank had the most unusual career. He was a Canadian and was arrested for his outspoken sympathies for the rebels, i.e. the Americans, and he enlisted in the Massachusetts Regiment immediately on his release from custody. He rose through the ranks and became an aide-de-camp of Benedict Arnold, and this is where things get interesting, because if you speak to an American they will curse out Benedict Arnold. He was a major general under George Washington, it was close with him, but then is famous or infamous for switching sides to the British and fighting on their behalf, eventually moving back to England. Now, when Arnold's treason was discovered, suspicion obviously fell on David Franks, but he was acquitted of all the charges levelled against him, which in Europe, with its instinctive anti-Semitism and distrust of the Jew, would never have happened. 
you know, all you have to do is think about Alfred Dreyfus in France a hundred years later. However, the terms of the verdict were not to David Frank's liking, and he insisted on a review of the trial by a special court of inquiry because he wanted to be completely exonerated. I suppose a special court of inquiry. And in 1789, not only was he named as being completely blameless of any complicity in Arnold's treason, he was actually promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Well, so he was very patriotic when given the opportunity. Yes, and alongside all these soldiers, the first Jew to die for his country was a Jew by the name of Francis Salvador. On August the 1st in 1776, he was working in a plantation. He was the owner of that plantation in South Carolina and defending the frontier against a British incited attack by the Cherokee Indians with a small army of 330 men. Salvador was a young English Jew of Portuguese ancestry who was born in London in 1747. He'd arrived in America in 1773 and was elected to the General Assembly of South Carolina, first Jew to represent the people in a legislative body in America, uh, probably, in fact, the first Jew in the modern world to serve as an elected officer, clearly something in Europe at the time, completely out of the question. And when the Indians struck near Salvador's plantation, so his commander, Major Andrew Williamson, with Salvador, set out on an expedition to round up volunteer troops to save the colony. This little army was ambushed and Salvador was shot and the Indians closed in. Williamson eventually found Salvador lying in a bush, barely alive. And Salvador asked whether the enemy was beaten back. He received yes as a positive answer. He shook Williamson's hand, said farewell, and died in his 29th year. And he was actually unaware of the Declaration of Independence, which had taken place just under a month earlier. The news had not yet reached them. And there is a plaque in Charleston today which reads, Born an aristocrat, he became a Democrat. An Englishman, he cast his lot with America. He was true to his ancient faith and gave his life for new hopes of human liberty and understanding. Wow. How do we know he was Jewish? We have records. The, the British records. Yeah. In other words, the, the, the records in the country were never subject to any dislocation. They were never exiled from that time. And therefore, there's a pretty solid tracing of the last 200 years of history. There were fires in the 1812 war with the British, but generally speaking. Wow. You mentioned earlier the first spy as well. Yes. So having spoken about the first citizens, this is perhaps the most surprising story of early America. Nowadays, when we think of Jewish spies in America, we probably think of Jonathan Pollard, even though what he was actually doing was passing on to Israel what America had agreed to share with its own ally. <laughs> Either way, if we go back a little further, perhaps into the 20th century or the middle of it, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's names appear in connection with passing top-secret classified documents to the Soviets after World War II. 
and they were in fact the first American civilians to be executed for espionage. But in this context, when I refer to the first American spy, I mean a Jewish American spy who spied for the Americans in America, in New York, no less. Although I guess being British, I can't really refer to him as being patriotic because he was spying on the Brits. Mm. So this Jew, who I will keep anonymous for the moment, stands out regarding the cause of the American Revolution because he risked his life for the cause was arrested twice and imprisoned, and we have to bear in mind that more American soldiers died in British prisons than died in battle. He was condemned to death, and his contribution was not limited to the war itself. It continued beyond. Yet, you are unlikely to have heard of him, and his treatment both at the time and subsequently is a blemish on America's public record. So let's now name him. Enter Chaim Solomon. Born in Lissa in Poland around 1740 to a family that was originally of Sephardic origins, Spanish and Portuguese Jews had migrated to the Jewish communities of Poland after 1492. He traveled in Europe acquiring a number of languages and an unusually good understanding of finance, arriving in New York via London in 1772. He established himself as a financial broker for merchants engaged in overseas trade and ran a brokerage office on Broad Street in New York for a couple of years. Now, New York was the seat of British power in the colonies, but Chaim Solomon cast his fortune with the Sons of Liberty, with the underground colonial patriots. And although we might think that traffic is quite difficult in New York, try the summer of 1776. It was pretty difficult then because different parts of New York were being fought over. Manhattan, Brooklyn, Long Island, and one after the other, they would fall to the British. What did Manhattan, Brooklyn look like back then? They were mostly empty areas, but there were certain places that were more populated, especially, as we mentioned, the lower part of Manhattan. But they were ports. They were places that you accessed by sea, not by car. Now, the interesting thing is that George Washington understood that in order to win this rebellion, this revolution, they would need intelligence gathering capabilities. And in fact, during the war, he spent more than 10% of his military funds on intelligence operations. So Chaim Solomon became a spy at the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. And his clandestine activities resulted in his arrest in September 1776. Of course, America at the time did not exist as an independent country, which meant that by spying, he was a traitor to his own country, nominally to England. And he was incarcerated in a prison, which actually would later contribute to his tuberculosis. The British 
would actually then give him partial freedom. They wouldn't let him go, but his terms of arrest were ameliorated after discovering his talent for languages. And they assigned him to spend 18 months as an interpreter with Hessian soldiers, in other words, German troops employed by the British. Why were German troops being employed by the British in America? Seems a bit odd. Right. So the British Parliament managed to negotiate treaties with various dukedoms and princedoms of German states for large sums of money in exchange for mercenaries, for troops. And in total, just under 30,000 German troops were hired by the British from a number of German states. So this now becomes his job in jail. Shame we couldn't do that in the war. <laughs> yes, that's true. So you'll see that he goes further than that. Because while he is in prison acting as an interpreter, he is responsible for encouraging as many as 500 of these Hessian soldiers to desert to the American side. And many biographies give his time in jail as 18 months, but actually he was paroled before that. And the reason we know that is because we read Hebrew. Because he got married in July 1777, which was about 11 months after he was arrested. And the Ksuba still exists. It's currently in the archives of the Jewish Historical Society. It's the one on West 16th Street near Union Square, not to be confused with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which is at the very bottom of Manhattan near Battery Park. And I've seen a digital copy which reads, So, you know, it's pretty clear that he got married. I think it works in English dates to something like the 5th or 6th of July of 1777. Although it's not impossible that he got married in jail. It's highly unlikely, <laughs> yeah. since there's the Ksuba and Edim, that the British would have extended this courtesy. Mm. In 1778, because after he's paroled, he goes back to working for the undergrounds. In 1778, he's arrested again, and this time he's sentenced to death. But on August 11th, he manages to escape by bribing a German jailer leaving behind gold, so they say. This part is not absolutely confirmed. And he makes his way to the revolutionary capital, which was Philadelphia. And here, he would make an even greater impact on the Rev American Revolution. Now, you might say, but given that he's risked his life, he's been imprisoned twice and sentenced to death, what more could he have contributed? The answer is finance. And the business of the port in Philadelphia was with foreign markets, whose trade Chaim Solomon knew. And in the first official recognition, the French consul appointed Solomon agent for the French government and paymaster general for the French army in America. And of course, we have to remember that France was on the American revolutionary side, basically because the French hated the British. In 1781, Robert Morris was made superintendent of finances of the young revolutionary republic. 
In England, you'd call him Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Secretary of State for Finance, basically. And he starts making use of Chaim Solomon on behalf of the new government. And there are repeated entries in Morris's financial diary that when money was needed to carry on the Revolutionary War, he wrote, I sent for Chaim Solomon. Morris would receive specie, so hides, tobacco, agricultural products, in lieu of money from the 13 colonies, and Solomon sold them. He was also called upon to act as a government agent to sell captured merchandise. That was his day job. <laughs> but beyond that, he floated loans from his own money. He contributed generously to needy soldiers, equipped military units with his own money, lent money to delegates of the Congress because a number of them were poor and their states did not always send them money on time. In fact, James Madison, who became the fourth president of the United States, wrote back to Virginia that he has been a pensioner for some time, dependent on the favor of Chaim Solomon. And there are other delegates to whom Chaim Solomon lent money without interest. Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the USA, James Monroe, the fifth president, and he never asked for repayment if they were incapable of doing so. And he also helped governments who were friendly towards the USA. In fact, records show that from the period of 1781 to 1784, his fundraising and personal lending helped provide over $650,000, which is in the billions of dollars in today's money, in financing to George Washington for his war effort. So one of the best Jewish fundraisers of all time. Absolutely, yes. Um, in fact, his most meaningful financial contribution came at a critical point just before the final war of the revolution at Yorktown. The setup is as follows. In August 1781, the Revolutionary Army had trapped the British commander, Lieutenant General Charles Caldwellis, in the Virginian coastal town of Yorktown. But Washington's war chest was completely empty. He didn't have money to buy food, uniforms, supplies, and the troops were close to mutiny. Washington worked out that he would need $20,000. When Morris told him there were no funds and no credit available, Washington was supposed to have said, send for Chaim Solomon. Now, whether George Washington did so or not is unknown, but what is undisputed is that Chaim Solomon raised $20,000 at that time, which made all the difference to the outcome. In addition, Solomon was involved in Jewish community affairs. He was a member of Congregation Mikveh Yisrael in Philadelphia, one of the oldest communities in North America. And in 1782, he made the largest individual donation towards the construction of the new shawl. In 1783, in Philadelphia, Solomon was among the prominent Jews involved in the successful effort to have the Pennsylvania Council remove the religious test oath which was required in order to hold office under state constitution. They were originally written, these laws, in order to ensure that the Quaker majority 
would not be able to hold office because Quakers objected to taking oaths at all. And it was, in fact, Solomon's friend, Robert Morris, who introduced the legislation to end these test laws. Is that Shaw Philadelphia still standing? No, they moved from there. But there is acknowledgement of where the building once stood. So all in all, Chaim Solomon was well-to-do in business. He has an advert in the press in May 1784 in English and French that he has now opened his own brokerage house on 22 Wall Street and that the nature of his business allows him to make remittances anywhere in the world. He was an important individual and lived a very important and full life. Very colorful life. Yes. From prison. He was such an important part of history. I'm wondering why we've never heard of him, or at least I've never heard of him. So he dies suddenly at the age of 45, January 8th, 1785, in Philadelphia, from a condition of tuberculosis, which he had contracted in prison, as we mentioned. And there is a letter from him which still exists, written shortly beforehand, in which he speaks of wanting to retire, both because of his financially strong situation and because of his impaired state of health. And when he died, he held over $300,000 in continental stocks and bonds, which would seem like a very comfortable legacy for his family. But due to the failure of the government and of private lenders to repay the debts on these government stocks, the whole lot went, as well as all his other assets, to repay what he had borrowed in the interests of the new American Republic during the war. Shockingly, therefore, Chaim Solomon died bankrupt, and he left his young wife, Rachel Franks, destitute, with four young children. His poverty-stricken family received nothing but the furniture of their home. And, in fact, this celebrated citizen was buried in a pauper's grave in the Basic Forest in Philadelphia. The tragic end. Yep. And if you want an exact accounting, the register's office in Philadelphia shows that he had, for instance, 58 loan office certificates for an amount of $110,233.65. You know, you've got to add at least three or four zeros to that to get into today's money. He had treasury certificates, commissioner certificates, continental liquidated assets of almost $200,000. So it would have been one of the most affluent families. Absolutely. And the whole thing just went. And after the government was properly established in America, bills were repeatedly brought up in Congress to repay his family, but they always failed to pass, and no compensation or adjustment was ever made. His heirs did not receive one cent. And for the next century and a half, nothing happens at all. It's not just they don't get any money back. There is no recognition of what he has done. In fact, it was the mayor of New York, LaGuardia, who set aside a Chaim Solomon day. And during World War II, the US liberty ship SS Chaim Solomon was named in his honor. But it was almost two centuries after his death until any nationwide reference was made to him. 
because on March the 25th, 1975, the Postal Service issued a commemorative stamp in tribute to Chaim Solomon for his contributions. And in fact, on the back of the stamp, they wrote, financial hero, businessman and broker Chaim Solomon was responsible for raising most of the money needed to finance the American Revolution and later to save the new nation from collapse. So that stamp is still around with a, so to speak, a picture of him on the front with the words Chaim Solomon, financial hero. But according to popular tale, Chaim Solomon's greatest gift to the American Jewish community is to be found tucked in most people's wallets. Because on the $1 bill, where you see the 13 colonies, they are represented by 13 stars in the shape of a Mogin David. And there is a legend that during the design process of the Great Seal, Washington asked Chaim Solomon what compensation he wanted in return for all his financial contributions to the Revolutionary War. And he replied that he wanted nothing for himself, but something for his people. Although there's not a lot of basis in fact, but it is oft repeated. And the official State Department document describing the history of the seal makes no mention of any Jewish symbolism. It writes, the stars are arranged in a hexagram, which is the geometric name of the Star of David, of the Morgan David. I doubt the president had much involvement in the new currency anyways. Yep, probably not. That is true. <laughs> now, speaking of seals and designs, the first proposed United States seal in 1776, which was brought about through the efforts of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they recommended a design whose theme was the escape of the Jews from Egypt. And, of course, they identified George III, the king in England, with Pharaoh and America as the promised land. Now, the interesting thing about the myth of Chaim Solomon and what his real contribution actually was, was that he becomes a I guess, a model case in Jewish patriotism in the formation of American Jewish heritage. And since very few Jews have revolutionary roots in the US, obviously the vast majority of the Jews came much later, the story of Chaim Solomon helps legitimize Jews in this country. It proves that they had played a major role in America's founding. And he had really made a difference. On the Jewish side of things, in 1784, Solomon answered anti-Semitic slander in the press by saying, it is true, I am a Jew, it is my own nation, and I do not despair that we shall obtain every other privilege that we aspire to enjoy along with our fellow citizens. Wow. So the Jews were all pro-American during the revolution? Some, many. In the Svardi community, that was much more the case because they had escaped Europe. Ashkenazim were more split. Cecil Roth mentions a number of Jews who were loyal to the British cause. Uh, I'll mention maybe three. One is Isaac Hart, who is one of the founders of the Newport Jewish community in Rhode Island. And when the war broke out, many Jews stayed there, including the Chazen 
Isaac Turo, who actually subsequently officiated in New York under the British. But when the British troops left, Isaac Hart left too, and he ended up in Long Island, which was occupied by the British. In 1780, during an attack by the Americans on Long Island, he was part of the defenders and he lost his life. In fact, the British account names him as having been murdered by the rebels for his attachment to Great Britain, inhumanely fired upon. So that's one. There's another by a woman by the name of Rachel Pinto, who was born in 1724. She left New York when the British troops temporarily retreated and returned when they came back in 1780. And two weeks later, she took the full oath of allegiance to the British cause. She hoped to regain possession of her house on Duke Street, but it was earmarked for the billeting of British troops. After the revolution was over, she actually stays on in New York. She doesn't go back to England. And she regularly subscribes funds to the Cahilla and lived to the ripe old age of 91. She died, I think, in October of 1815. And perhaps the last loyalist to mention is the most interesting of the three, Avraham Wagg, who was born in 1719, a member of a prominent British Jewish family in London. He came to New York where he was a grocer and a chocolate manufacturer. Now, although he was British, he was very distressed by the tension between the Americans and the British, and he tried to bring about a reconciliation between the two sides, which was not as unachievable as we would think back then. It obviously never worked out, and he left back to England. He lived in Bristol where he died. But here you have somebody who tried to do something about the situation and was loyal ultimately to the British cause. Well, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Uh, it was laced with obviously many Brits throughout. That's <laughs> patriotic as you, as you in always... In one way or another. <laughs> yes, but we did give the American public something to think about. That is the end of episode one of four. And looking forward for next week's. Do we have a name for next week's episode? California Gold Rush. California Gold Rush. Okay, thank you very much. As usual, feedbacks and comments are welcome to to please be sent to podcast at jle.org.uk. See you next week. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you.